Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Randall Smith. Randall is a professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. And he has a recent book out called From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. Uh, Randall, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So I've read many of your articles, but you had a couple recently in the Catholic thing focused on prudence. Uh, The first article was called Holiness and Prudence, and then Apostolic Authority and Civic Prudence. And I thought, you know, reading those articles, uh, it it was a great reminder that, unfortunately, it's um, like common sense. It's not very common, the virtue of prudence. People think they're experts in every field and can make decisions on everything. And so I really appreciated the articles, but I thought maybe to get started, maybe just as a reminder, can you give the definition of prudence just in case people uh, may have forgotten? Yeah, it's a very important thing, good, important question, because, you know, in the modern world, we oftentimes, uh, the connotations surrounding the word prudence are just being careful, right? Uh, There used to be a a joke about the very first George H.W. Bush about, uh, well, wouldn't be prudent. And, you know, and the idea was that, well, we have to just be really careful and not, you know, to that's not the classical meaning of prudence. Excuse me. When you go back to like Thomas Aquinas or back all the way to Cicero and the idea of prudentia. Right. And uh, similarly in Aristotle, you know, again, that's a, this is a fundamental virtue. And if you read Joseph Pieper's wonderful, wonderful book on the virtues, excuse me, apologize. um, Wonderful book on the virtues. He also talks about the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, and says, as Thomas Aquinas does, that it's the uh, heart and soul uh, or the mind, we might say, of the other virtues. The virtue, virtues, uh, because it's um, how the mind understands the truth of things. Anyway, to, to make uh, a simple ju- uh, sort of description of prudence, we might just call it good judgment. Or the other term sometimes people use instead of prudence is just use the term wisdom. Right? Does that make sense? That might, uh, I think, oftentimes when I'm teaching this with students, and I say prudence, again, it's very hard for them to get out of that mindset that like, you know, well, it's being careful, uh, et cetera. So when I say, for example, uh, about some uh, a, a village of people who rescued Jews during the Second World War, which, of course, endangered them completely, I said, well, were they prudent? And my students are like, no, that, that, that wouldn't be prudent. I say, well, were they wise? Did they make the right judgment? the good judgment about, you know, protecting these people. Well, then they tend to say, oh, yeah, no, they were wise, right? They were. But, you know, so it's just very hard for us to get out of that idea that prudence is something that is self-protective. So anyway, let's just say good judgment about moral choices. Well, and with anything else, right, if we don't have a well-formed conscience— then making prudent decisions and good judgments aren't going to happen anyway. So it's always a reminder that we need to make sure we have a well-formed conscience. But in your first article, you know, you kind of go into, you know, the difference between holiness and prudence, right? You talk about in the very beginning, right? A holy monk 
maybe holy, but he's not necessarily the best person to make judgments on civic affairs. And sometimes we kind of mix those up. We think, well, if you're a, you know, a Catholic prelate and you should be able to make those decisions. And really, we see that that is far from the truth, right? That prudence really involves experience. And we're going to make those type of decisions, right? Yeah. And this is why, I mean, to, to, to take it away from bishops for a second and point it right at myself, right? Um, I, I always tell my students, look, this is why uh, I teach moral theology. And I say, this is why I can't, uh, nor anyone else here, but, you know, me particularly, right? I can't tell you how to make judgments when you're going to go out and be a physician, a lawyer, an insurance executive, you know, owner of a business, uh, somebody who, uh, is, uh, uh, wait staff in a restaurant. I can't tell you that I don't do those things. Right. Um, so there's a whole, uh, area of good, you know, abilities to make good judgments and experience of the problems that come up in those areas that I don't really know anything about right now we can, I think in the church lay down the basic fundamental principles about respect for the human person, human dignity, justice, et cetera, et cetera. And we can have students read a lot of great literature to get an experience of in that way uh, and an understanding of human nature, human flourishing, uh, human emotions, the things that go into, you know, causing us to make mistakes. But in the real everyday life of people, they just have to get into it and they have to, I say to my students, look, when you go out into the world, you're going to have to find people who are living the kind of life and the way that you want to live, right? Given the values and the, and the principles that you have, and you're going to have to watch them and you're going to have to hang around them and you're going to have to see what they do. And you're going to have to be, as it were, kind of judged by them, by their lives. And then you're going to have to make your own mistakes and learn from your mistakes and just try to get better and better. And of course, always animated by prayer you know, confession, uh, Eucharist and, and, you know, building up, uh, you know, a moral life, but the notion that somehow, you know, we can, we can give you this course in moral theology and then it prepares you to go out and make all these decisions. Yeah. It's not going to happen. They know it's not going to happen. And I know it's not going to happen. And so they should just know that's not the presumption. The presumption is that they're going to have to go out and build this skill as it were, although we call virtue of prudence or good judgment. Yeah, and it is a reminder, right? It takes time, right? We, you know, sometimes we think when we were in our 20s how smart we were until we get into our 30s and realize how unintelligent we really were. So it really is time, experience, right? Having that moral foundation so that we kind of use that as our, as our starting point. But that time and experience, uh, there's no substitute for it. And I think, you know, telling your students that is, is very uh, important because they're going to go out into the world and how how often when we leave college, we think we know everything uh, and we make a bad, bunch of bad decisions, but hopefully we learn from them. So it's that learning experience that helps gives us that, that ability to make better decisions later on. Right. I think you're absolutely right. But it, I also want to reiterate, I just think people have to find mentors. Uh, but again, right. mentors who are living the virtues and the virtues that are uh, and 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 uh, have had the ability and and you know gained the wisdom of that particular thing. So, uh, the great philosopher Alistair McIntyre sometimes calls this finding communities of virtue, right? 
uh, and finding people who, uh, again, are uh, living out and exhibiting, you know, the virtues that you want. And again, not only prudence or, again, wisdom, but, uh, you know, temperance, fortitude, justice, care, compassion, generosity, all these things, uh, you know. So I just tell my students, you got to go out and look for those things and find those people. And uh, again, rub yourself up around them and be in their company and watch what they do and let them critique you. That's going to be very, very important. I said, you know, again, because it's very, it's much easier in a way in a school like ours, where it's a Catholic context to kind of have these ideals getting out in the world. It's like, look, you know, it's very different out there. And it's very common for people to have a kind of idealism when they're in college and then they get out and they're like, well, this is the real world. The point is, yeah, that is the real world. That's why you got to find, you know, you've got to be animated by uh, grace and you got to find people who will uh, teach you and uh, model for you the virtues. Well, and I think that critiquing is so important, right? We live in a world that, you know, no one likes to be criticized or corrected, right? We all want to you know, all we want is praise and accolades, and we don't want people to think and look at us critically to help make us better people because we get so easily offended. So I think that ability to be able to take criticism or take correction to help us be better is is a great virtue because when we are so self-focused, we lose that ability, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I, this is really important. And again, look, anybody who's been uh, engaged, or if people think, and most people have been engaged in some kind of art or skill, uh, whether it's sports, basketball, football, whatever, um, there's the term uncoachable, right? Um, and similarly, in you know, if you have an artist who's uh, you know a potter and throws pots on the parting wheel or does any of this kind of stuff, everybody who's done that a great violinist knows that, look, when you begin, you make lots of mistakes and you think, oh, it would be better to do it this way. And a great coach or a great teacher teaches you, "Mm, you think that's going to be the right way, but it's not really right. And you have to learn um, how to get better at the thing and make better judgments. And again, you watch people who are really, really good at the skill and you learn from them. Uh, but if you're uncoachable or unteachable, you just don't get better. Um, you make mistakes and then you think it's everybody else's fault that they didn't somehow, you know, respect your genius or something like that. But again, I think the people who are best and again, when people think about skills, then they should say to themselves, Oh yeah, what if I thought of, the virtues as a kind of life skill. You know, sometimes people talk about life hacks, but you know, like it's a life skill, how to get along and be good with people and how to live a life, which is a life of flourishing and meaningfulness and significance. Right. And the point is like, well, if you don't think that you could learn to play basketball and play it excellently all by yourself without having anybody else coach you or teach you or watching anybody else, what makes you think you could live your life? which is a bigger and more complex issue without being coached, taught, watching how others do it. You're right. Uh, Just think of it that way, like as, as basketball on a large scale, right? Well, and the other thing is it's a reminder that, 
you know, hopefully we get to that point by living virtuous lives where we can be that example and model for people. So if we're willing to be coached as we grow up and, and led, then hopefully it makes us better leaders and examples uh, for people who are younger us or who, you know, haven't had that experience. So it really is a, a maturation process that's hopefully we can be that person that other people look up to when it comes to living lives of virtue, if that's what we're focused on and we have, you know, Christ as our center. Yeah. I mean, again, we don't uh, develop the virtue so that we can be seen to be virtuous, but you're right. I mean, again, simply living the virtues, right? I mean, mother Teresa didn't start picking up half dead people off the side of the road in Calcutta. So she could, win the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Or so that you could be seen as virtuous. It was, but of course, once you just started doing this, other people started to say, oh, I want to be part of that. I want to do that. And it was like, well, if you do, then all right, this is a certain way of living. And people then were drawn to it. Uh, and of course, for her, it was like, well, but you're not really being drawn to me. You're being drawn to, you know, the way of Christ. And so, okay, great. Uh, but we just have to, you know, devote ourselves to this thing, um, selflessly, right? It is one of the great paradoxes of, of life that, um, as the second Vatican council says, John Paul II always say that we discover ourselves and become fuller when we give of ourselves to others, right? When you give of yourself to others, you don't have less, you become more. And again, it is kind of counterintuitive, right? You think, well, if I just get more and more and more for me, I'll have more. And the point is, no, if you give more and more and more of yourself away to others, then you are, you have more, right? So it's, it's unlike pizza, right? It is simply is the case that if you give away half your pizza, you have less pizza. But if you give of yourself to others, you have more. Christ is the model for that, right? And that should be right. who we look to, not to what the world says, because as you mentioned in the paradox, the world is going to lead us in a different direction. So if we're focused on Christ and, and we're not, and we kind of block out the noise, it does make life a little bit easier if, if we have, not a lot easier, actually, if we have that focus. But, you know, in the, in the second uh, article that you wrote, I thought was, was really important because you mentioned apostolic authority and civic prudence. Uh, and it is a reminder that we don't follow, uh, you know, Catholic leaders blindly, right? We have to have, you know, our moral compass in line. But when they start deviating and talking about foreign policy, immigration, uh, you know, climate control, like we just had uh, Pope Francis and his his latest uh, Laudate Duum. Um, You know, they are not ex-authorities in that area. So we have to be careful to follow blindly with just because, right, our Catholic leaders say something, right? That doesn't mean it's, uh, you know, it's not regarding faith and morals. We we don't need to be um, lockstep because we're not following the experts necessarily, correct? Yeah, look, this is a tough, I, of course, uh, uh, being a you know, devoted Catholic and convert, uh, in no way want to undermine the apostolic authority of the Pope, the bishops. They are our apostles, right? That's our understanding of what bishops are. They are the successors of the apostles. On the other hand, um, I think, for example, as the Second Vatican Council makes clear and 
John Paul II and Benedict always made clear, um, one has to, and this has been a long tradition, one has to distinguish, right? And that's what I was trying to do. The fundamental principles we can turn to and shouldn't discount, right, the teachings of uh, the magisterium and the tradition and the scriptures. Under no circumstances would I want to undermine any of that. However, when you move from the fundamental principles to practical applications in political, uh, the political realm, right, there, then that's, again, we're second man councils. This is the role of the laity, right? Like I, people who are mayors of cities and senators and congressmen and people on school boards, PTA, they have to make very concrete judgments in circumstances where it's like, well, okay, not everybody here is Catholic and uh, we've got a lot of difficulties in the town and there's, you know, we only have a certain uh, number of resources. Now, again, we all need to be called to greater self-giving. By the same token, though, again, these sort of particular judgments, I'm always a little worried when uh, people turn to bishops or the Pope to like, tell us about what we should do. And the point is like, Jesus didn't sort of say, oh, here's how you should deal with the Romans. Okay. Here's what kind of government you ought to have. Here's how you should deal with X, Y, and Z for very particular. Um, unless we're talking about very clear, uh, violations of the natural law or the divine law, right? The commandments. I mean, in other words, if you have, uh, a society, which is, um, you know, murdering Jews or, uh, killing the unborn, well, then of course, bishops have to say, you're, you're violating the law of God, right? You're violating these fundamental moral principles and you have to stop beyond that. Um, and there's not, did not only abortion and killing people, right? There could be other things that bishops have every reason to speak about. Then you get to very particular moral judgments about, you know, how many immigrants and whatever. Now, again, a principle of welcoming and of treating people with dignity. Absolutely. What the policy about immigration should be. Well, again, that's the lady needs to work that out. They need to be called to something important, but you know, that's again, a kind of civic prudence, which, uh, you know, when you're a governor or a mayor of a city, if you're going to be successful at it, again, it's something that requires, you know, again, it would be like a bishop saying, here's what you need to do to be a successful violinist or something. And the point is like, look, you don't know anything about being a violinist, right? And running a city or being governing it, as it were, and, and doing it in a way which is respectful of, you know, democracy, Republican, is, is a is this very, very tough skill. Right. It's hard to be a mayor in this way. It's look, I always say this. It's hard to be a bishop. Right. I mean, a mm-hmm. bishop should know this. Like, you know, like how you I remember my mentor, Father Benedict Ashley, who used to, you know, oftentimes go to the bishops. He said it's hard to be a bishop. You do one thing and it makes the progressives unhappy. You do another thing. It makes the conservatives happy. And, you know, the city does things and they I don't like you. for Anyway, it's hard to be, you know, it takes a great deal of wisdom to figure out how to do things in ways that are value or that honor your, the tradition, the magisterium, et cetera, et cetera, you know, instantiate your moral principles, but do so in a way that doesn't just make everybody angry and make people reject you. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing anyway. And so bishops, I think, and popes should respect this, that it's hard to be the president of the United States. It's hard to be the president of France or, you know, the chancellor of Germany or wherever it is. We hear the term armchair quarterback, backseat driver, right? Stay in your lane. I mean, all these, all these things, right? It's, it's easy to take pot shots at people, but 
in the same vein, right, we have to be able to discern ourselves who is the expert in this area and how can they help inform me. And you, you mentioned even in the article, which is, you know, something I, I remind myself of quite a bit, right? You say, shouldn't we at least demand that our civic leaders all be Catholic? Well, in an ideal world, right, that would be great. But we see Catholics in the presidency in different places and p- positions of power who promote abortion and do all these things. So just because someone's Catholic, we shouldn't, you know, roll out the red carpet and say, we will follow you wherever you go, right? We need to be able to use and, and, and see, not use, but see people for the expertise that they have and not just because you're Catholic, you get my undivine devotion, right? Yeah, look, this is always, I mean, this is again, uh, there are, there's a group of people who think, yeah, look, we need to make a confessional state or something like that. This is, has always been a mistake, <laughs> okay, and has often turned out very badly, but also um, people understand that that idea that, okay, everybody in the government really needs to be, you know, our brand of something, um, is was was a really a Protestant principle. Um, and again, I've read several, several articles about this. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, if you're a Calvinist in Geneva, it's kind of like, well, who should be in the government? Well, we can't have any heretics here. So it's got to just be us, just Calvinists. Um, and it was John Henry Newman, in fact, who said, look, this has always been a Protestant principle that you you make the people, uh, you know, your brand by controlling the government. This is this has never been the, the, the Catholic idea, by the way. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, look, what you should be looking for is, uh, it, it seems to me, and I mean, I think even our, the founders of, the, of our constitutional principle, you should look for people who have wisdom, right? You people who, who share, you know, the fundamental values that we have as Catholics, right? And there are plenty of people who do, whether they're Catholic or Protestant or not, or non-theist, people who share those fundamental principles, um, who have, who have demonstrated wisdom, right. And judgment and, and whether they completely agree with you on everything or not, right. It's like, well, but I, I respect Dave or Sally, whatever. And she, I just think she has very, very good judgment. And, uh, we might disagree on a few things, but you know, nobody's going to make better judgments about, you know, she cares about the common good and she will make as good a judgments as anybody who can go up to the Senate, you know, and make these judgments. Uh, what we tend to do is instead, you know, elect people based on ideology or do you share my ideology on this or my political view on that? Right. Well, and again, then, you know, I mean, as you've seen, we're just sending Catholics to the, you know, to the, to the, uh, to the Senate or the, or put in the presidency hasn't really solved any of our problems. How many of those people really, I mean, you know, when people say, oh, we should have confessional state or something, like oh, how many of those people really want to put bishops, you know, U.S. bishops or even the Pope or, you know, College of Cardinals in charge of American political life? But none of them, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of absurd in a way, right? Um, nobody wants the U.S. I mean, there are some very, very superb bishops that we have in this country. Um, but, I, you know, the, what makes them superb is, is that they don't necessarily want to run the, the civic affairs of the city they're in. They know their own limitations. They know what they do. Again, they stay in their lane, as it were. Um, so anyway, uh, that's uh, – but for the most part, again, anybody who's kind of saying we need a confessional state is like, well, who would run that? 
be the same people who once it was enacted would hate it. Yeah. No, I mean, the way they hate bishops, they hate Catholics who disagree with them. It's like, look, we need to learn to get along. And, you know, St. Paul talks about this. All the early fathers and doctors of the church talk about this, about the importance of charity, of learning to live together and not, you know, devolving into rancor and hatred and bitterness and division. Um, we're meant to be one body. And uh, this is this is a task. It's hard. It takes patience. But of course, that's the whole Christian life. Yeah, and I think the reminder is, right, we're visitors in this world. Yes, we have to participate. We should be voting, right? We should be good civic partners. But our ultimate home, our desire for the ultimate home is heaven. And so we do need to live our lives with lives of virtue, but we do need to be active civically and and right, go out to all the world and tell the good news. Just because someone's not Catholic, they're not our enemy, right? We're all souls that need to be saved in the end anyway. And I think your articles kind of remind us of, you know, how we should not only live our lives, but how we should view other people too, and how we can use and, and embrace their expertise to help make this a better world. Yeah, that's the beauty, for example, in the Catholic tradition, the natural law tradition, right? We believe that deeply, though that the world has fallen, we think there are going to be among all men and women of goodwill, um, the seeds of those virtues, right? And that God's grace is operating in and through them in various and sundry ways. So that we think, oh yeah, for example, the Ten Commandments, love God, love your neighbors yourself. Uh, well, then the Ten Commandments, you know, don't kill, don't steal, et cetera, et cetera. Those aren't just somehow very unique to Judaism and Christianity. Around the world, you can find people who believe that you should do unto others you would have them do unto you. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. God has been operating in and through creation. God's grace has been operating throughout the whole world. So we, when we find those seeds, you know, elsewhere, we just want to nurture them. We want to say, ah, yes, we recognize absolutely what you're talking about and looking for. We think we have the fullest expression of in and through Jesus Christ. There's no need to, yes, C.S. Lewis used to see, there's no need to reject everything you find in every other religion or moral tradition. You can affirm all those things that are valuable there, and then you have to oppose things which are totally contradictory, like, let's go kill Jews, let's have slavery, let's kill the unborn, right? You know, then we have to say, I'm sorry, that that's absolutely contrary to the law of God, but also this is what the other thing we can show them and it's also totally contradictory to everything that's the deepest values that you yourself hold respect life radio is produced by catholic charities in the archdiocese of denver and remember you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com